You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. In Ecclesiastes, we discover that a life spent in pursuit of pleasure, achievement, and control will ultimately leave us empty-handed. Life isn't about what we can obtain, but about what we already have, and learning to receive it from God with gratitude. Welcome to Ecclesiastes, life as gift, not gain. They thought the airline was treating them poorly by making them wait without no explanation and no time frame. They started talking to themselves. What kind of airlines is this? This service is absurd. What exactly did we sign up for? What about you? Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like you were being mistreated? Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like you were being overlooked, maybe even neglected? If so, let me ask you this question. How do we respond to the hardships, heartache, and pain within this life? How do we, how do you respond to the hardships, the heartache and pains within this life. You see, thus far within the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has taken upon the role of a construction worker. And he has purposefully and intentionally sought to dismantle, destroy, and deconstruct the illusions of life. He he is seeking to destroy this quid pro quo type relationship that we seem to have within life. Quid pro quo means something for something in Latin. For instance, if I do X, then I will always get Y. If I do business with integrity, then I will be seen, I will be known, and I will be promoted. Always, no questions asked. If I close business on Sunday then surely God will bless me and give me greater profits. I love what author David Gibson says in his book, Life Living Living Life Backwards, about the book of Ecclesiastes. He says this words, he says, the book of Ecclesiastes comes and gives us an honest look at life with no spin. It shows us exactly how things are. In fact, what we are really doing here is trying to control our lives trying to control the outcome. And we think this is what will settle us, calm our anxieties and give us peace. And the preacher just hammers to us over and over again, you have no control. You can be a devout, righteous woman living a life fully aware of God's presence and get hit by a drunk driver and die when you're 35. So church, let me ask you again, How should we respond when we're awakened to the reality that we have no control in life? You know, there are many different ways we can respond. One of the ways that we often respond to us acknowledging or realizing we have no control in this life is that we try to flee from reality. We ignore the problem and we just try to persevere through it. Do whatever I can to get through it. Some of us, we try to numb the reality. 
We ignore the problem until it finally blows up. Amen? I'm a part of that group if you are a part of that group. Thirdly, we also try to avoid reality. We ignore the problem and we just live life just as it is. See, in Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 through 14, Solomon provides a more appropriate way to respond to the reality of our limitations. He he gives us a more appropriate way to respond to the reality that we are in control of our lives. And Solomon says this, he says, we are to grow in wisdom. We are to grow in wisdom. This is a good reminder for us as a church that wisdom is the ability to make spiritually informed decisions. It is applying the divine truth of God's kingdom to every area of one's life. Look look with me in verses 11 and 12 to see the value of wisdom. Listen to what Solomon says. He says, wisdom is as good as an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun because wisdom is protection as silver is protection, but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its owner. So what is Solomon saying about the value of wisdom? He's saying that those who possess money and wisdom are under the same protection. He says, while money often vanishes during difficult times, the superiority of wisdom is that it's able to guide one through difficult times and thereby preserve your life. It's a good reminder for us that God's wisdom is able to lead you through the uncertainties, through the heartache, and even through the pain and disappointments of this life. I hear someone saying, but Pastor James, I still don't understand what you're talking about. How does wisdom preserve one's life? Wisdom preserves one's life much like the headlights of a car during a heavy fog. You ever seen this situation behind me? Wisdom preserves life much like the use of a flashlight in the darkened woods of Kentucky. Wisdom preserves life much like the rays of the sun that find their way through the cloudiest of days. So Solomon is encouraging us to choose another option, not to flee from reality, not to numb our realities, and not to avoid our realities. Solomon is encouraging us to embrace God's wisdom despite living in a broken world. So this is the question we're going to consider this morning. How can we choose as a church? How can we choose to embrace God's wisdom despite living within a broken world? Will you pray with me? Father, we do love you and thank you. We ask that you would be with us. God, as always, take my little and make much much of it. I don't have much to give, but God, what? Um, I pray that your word will be seen and be known. It will go forth and, and not come back void. I pray that some mind will be transformed and some soul be saved for the betterment of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, my wife has a beautiful saying within our home one that she often uses to help our family reframe our feeble attempts to be perfect. And she calls it beautiful oops. 
And this is not something that she came up with. This is actually from a children's book by this guy named Barney Salzberg. Beautiful oops that you see behind me. And this phraseology of beautiful oops is a kind reminder that God's grace extends beyond our mistakes and that his beauty is able to surpass our shortcomings and failures in this life. In other words, God can take our mistakes and still make something beautiful out of it. Amen? And as we begin Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we recognize Solomon's beautiful oops because he no longer reflects on the proverbial nature of wisdom, but now, now Solomon provides a clear and intentional way and call to live wisely. Solomon provides for us this morning four ways to embrace wisdom despite the brokenness of this world. Look with me at the first way to embrace wisdom. Number one, embrace the limitations of life. Number two, embrace wise counsel. Number three, embrace patience. And number four, embrace the sovereignty of God. Let's look at that first way that Solomon gives us in verses one through four. Embrace the limitations of life. Look with me in verses one through four. Solomon writes these words, a good name is better than fine perfume and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting since that is the end of all mankind and the living should take it to heart. Grief is better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in a house of pleasure. Notice with me the use of the word better in these verses. (laughs) Solomon mentions first that it is better to have a good reputation than simply to smell good. Next, he says that it's better to attend a funeral than to attend a birthday party. Thirdly, he mentions that it's better to sit at a funeral than to sit before an all-you-can-eat buffet. Finally, he mentions that it's better to know always know grief than it is to always know laughter. Now, now let me just assume that I, I can enter your mind for a minute. I, I think I know what you're thinking right now. I, I think I know what you're thinking. Here, here, here he goes again. <laughs> Solomon, why are you so morbid? Why are you so depressing, Solomon? Why are you always talking about death and dying? Solomon is like that annoying friend who always ends every conversation with the phrase, I just like to keep it real. You know that friend? Solomon, why can't you be, stop being such an Eeyore and be more like Tigger from Winnie the Pooh? So so what's the point? What what are we supposed to get from this? I love what David Gibson writes in his book, again, Living Life Backwards. He says this. He says, Solomon is not encouraging us to think morbidly, morbidly, but he knows that it's helpful to think clearly about death. It reminds us that there is still time for change, time to examine the direction of our lives, and a time to confess our sins and find forgiveness from God, because everyone will eventually die. And it makes sense to plan ahead to experience God's mercy rather than his justice. 
See, these four verses carry a theme of remembering the, the limitations of humanity, humanity and the wisdom to reflect on the reality that you will eventually die. In other words, that your time here on earth is limited. As one author puts it, the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. Not because death is better, it's not, but because a coffin is a better preacher or teacher than a crib. You know, when I lived in Princeton, New Jersey, one of my favorite things to do with my family uh, was walk through the cemetery. And there was a beautiful cemetery where many of the historical greats of our country and our, of this nation resided. Jonathan Edwards was one of them. Um, and other, other men like that as well. Uh, Charles Hodges was also buried there um, as well. And our, our neighborhood was adjacent to this cemetery. And I would often take my kids there to go walking. But oftentimes in the middle of the walk, I would encourage them to go look and look around and find a tombstone of uh, someone who either lived the same year that they lived or, or well, that was, yeah, or died the, the same year that they, that they were born. And they would go off and they would look and they would see. And, and, and by God's grace, they couldn't find a lot of different tombstones that, 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 that um, qualified with the qualifications that I had provided. But every once in a while, come a, of a tombstone of a young child who had passed away. And they say, Mommy, Daddy, like, this, this kid's the same age as me. They were born the same month that I was born. And they, they, they died the same year that, um, just last year, daddy, why, why God would do that? And we, we get into these discussions and these talks. You see, a lot of you may be thinking that's pretty morbid and sad for you to do as a father. And I get that. I, I totally accept that. If that's your opinion, that's okay. But you know what I was really trying to teach my kids in that moment? I, I was trying to teach them the beauty of song. <laughs> of God's word in Psalm 90, verse 10. You know what Psalm 90, verse 10 says? It says this, it says, teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. You know what's wrong with a lot of us in regards to wisdom is that we don't number our days carefully. If God told you right now, that you only had one week to live, I guarantee that many of us, our attitudes, our dispositions, and our behaviors would change drastically. You know why? Because you have now understood that my time here on earth is valuable, and I only have a week's time to be with family, to be with friends, to leave a legacy that I wanted to leave. And I'm going, to make, I'm going to make this every moment valuable with every single person that I interact with. Beloved, God doesn't have to tell you that you're going to die in a week for you to live life that way. Psalm 90 encourages us, it, it, it implores to us that we should take account of some things. We should take account that every day God gives us is a gift. Every moment you wake up and you have life is a gift. Every time you get in your car and your car starts, it's a gift. Every time your wife wakes up next to you or your spouse in that wakes up to you, that's a gift. Remember our theme of Ecclesiastes? 
What, what is the whole point that we're trying to do with this book? We want to live wise. We want to live this life as a gift and not as something to gain. You know what the fool does? The fool says, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter how I react because I always got tomorrow or I always got an hour or I always got some other time to make up for it. That's how the fool thinks. And this is how God sees us living our lives. And he's calling us gently. He's calling us lovingly to take account of our lives and realize that every moment is a gift from him. Look at me in verses four and two. It said, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Since it is the end of all mankind and the living should take it to heart. Grief is better than laughter for when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Now, now once again, Solomon is not commending death here. But Solomon is commending the wisdom found to live our life by acknowledging our limitations and not simply ignoring them. And that's the point. That's the point that he wants us to get. The sooner we come to grips with our impending death, the wiser our life has a chance to become. In other words, funerals should serve as a sober reminder of our impending death and encourage us to live our lives with both intentionality and purpose. Notice with me, the limitations that you experience within this life shouldn't lead you to greater despair, but they should lead you to even greater dependence upon our limitless God. The limitations, let me, let me repeat that. The limitations that you experience, they're not meant to lead you to greater despair, but they are meant to lead you to an even greater dependence on our limitless God. You know, as a preacher, I, I used to get upset with, uh, today is actually, I'm, I'm celebrating 20 years of preaching. July 18, 2001, I got licensed at Liberty Temple Baptist Church to become a licensed minister. And I thank God for the opportunity. But you know what? Oftentimes I've been my greatest critic. I've always been about on myself about the ums and the ahs and how I could do so much better and how I could say this or what preacher I could be like or, or, or desire to be like. And I've always been my greatest critic in my own ear. But within the last five to 10 years, the Lord has shown me something that I would like to share with you is that our limitations are not meant to destroy us. We all have limitations. None of us are perfect. None of us, get, get, none of us gets it right all the time. But what God has shown me is that the limitations that he's provided to me are actually a gift. They're a gift to look to my God who is limitless in his perfection, who is limitless in his grace and who's limitless in his power. I hope I'm preaching to somebody right now. Your, your limits are not meant to destroy you. They're meant to cause you to look to your God, your king. Look to the sovereign hand of the one who created all things with the breath of his word. 
Look to God to restore you and to complete what you can't complete yourself. Stop doing it on your own. God isn't surprised by your shortcomings and failures. Your shortcomings and failures don't discredit your salvation with God, but they serve as continual evidence of your need for it. See, wisdom is not found in embracing the limitations of life, but wisdom is found in learning how to embrace wise counsel. Look with me in verses five and six. First of all, look at verse five with me. It says, it is better to listen to rebuke from a wise person than to listen to the songs of fools. So, so what is Solomon saying here? Solomon is saying this, that it's better for a trusted friend to sit down with you and list out all your failures and all of your shortcomings and all of your flaws than to, can, to, than to spend countless hours listening to the playlist that you've created on Spotify. The reason why is because Psalm 27, 6 says this. It says, the wounds of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. See, one of the best questions to ask a wise, trusted friend is this. How do you experience me? (laughs) How do you experience me? You see, a lot of times we, we project a ton, a, a, to other people how, how they experience us, right? But, but a wise thing to do is to get along with your spouse, to get along with your children one-on-one and just say, hey, how do you experience me as a mom? How do you experience, how do you experience me as a grandma? How, how do you experience me as a spouse? I think I'm killing it. I think I'm doing great. But how do you experience me? I pray that we will become a church that will be more open to that question, that it wouldn't be something that's foreign. How do you experience me as a roommate? How do you experience me as a coworker? You know, we do these things in real life. We don't ask it in this way, but what they're called is a job performance, right, survey? <laughs> we get it all the time, and your boss gets to lay the real deal out, right? You think you're killing the game. He's like, oh, yeah, you're doing good, but these areas could be could be better. <laughs> and with that, let me pause and say this. If, you, if you're going to ask the question, be prepared for answers you won't expect. Put down your defenses. Put down your defenses. If, if you, listen, if you really want to change and if you really want to grow, you can't be defensive when someone gives you feedback. You, you can't say, how do you experience me? right? And everything they say, you're fighting back, but I do this and I do that, right? No. Wisdom says, if we want to grow, we have to go to wise, trusted friends and get their counsel and get their advice. Look with me at verse six of why this is important. It says, for like the crackling of burning thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. You see, church, if we constantly surround ourselves with the laughter of fools without taking the time to listen to to the wise counsel of others, then we'll lack the wisdom to choose to live wisely in a broken world. Why? Because all we are filling ourselves is with fun and with laughter, and we are not filling ourselves with wise counsel. Wise counsel and wisdom is um, is much like toothpaste in a tube. 
right? What you, when you squeeze that tube, whatever's inside, guess what? It's coming out. <laughs> when you squeeze that tube, whatever's on the inside is going to come out. And what Solomon is calling us to do, church, is to surround ourselves with people who can put wisdom inside of us so that when the pressures of life squeeze you, when the troubles and heartaches and pains of this life squeeze you, what comes out is what you've allowed to be put in. Jesus put it like this. He said, you know, out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. Your mouth is telling you more than you know. And Jesus is saying, out of the abundance of your heart, and when, when, when pain and sorrows of this world come upon you and it squeezes your heart, what comes out is what's already in there. Take heed to the words that you say, because they will tell you a lot about what's going on in the inside. See, notice, much like thorns burning quickly within a fire, so too is the value of the laughter of fools. Their value is only in the moment. There's no value beyond the moment experience. So, Pastor James, if I'm honest, it sounds like you're, you're trying to take the fun out of life. <laughs> Why can't we simply enjoy life, right? Life is fun. Why does everything have to be so serious all the time? Hear the wisdom of one author when he says these words. He says, let's be clear. The person who lives like this is not morbid. On the contrary, what characterizes a person who lives like this is depth. They have a depth of soul and a depth of character, but superficiality is the mark of the escapist who is living in denial. So not only is wisdom, not only is wisdom to embrace wise counsel, but it's also learning how to embrace patience. Look with me in verses 7 through 10. It says, surely the practice of extortion turns a wise person into a fool and a bribe corrupts the mind. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. A patient spirit is better than a proud spirit. Don't let your spirit, your spirit rush to anger, for anger abides in the heart of fools. Don't say, why were the former days better than these, since it's not wise for you to ask this? Notice here that Solomon provides two clear admonitions and a stern warning. Solomon's first admonition to us is this. Learn how to finish what you start. Learn how to finish what you start. It's very similar to what Proverbs says in Proverbs 19:18 that without revelation or without vision, People run wild, but one who follows divine instruction will be happy. Let's look at verse 8b together. It says, the end of a matter is better than its beginning, and a proud spirit is better, uh, a patient spirit, excuse me, is better than a proud spirit. So why is the end of a matter better than its beginning? Look with me to verse 8b. It says, a patient spirit is better than a proud spirit. So why is a patient spirit better than a proud spirit? Well, to finish what, what one starts, it takes hard work, wise guidance, self-discipline, and patience. Notice with me, vision 
without patience and godly wisdom results in unfinished goals. Vision without patience and godly wisdom results in unfinished goals. It's a good reminder for us that where you lack patience is often the same place where you lack wisdom. So let me ask you a question. (laughs) Where in your life do you lack wisdom? Where in your life do you lack patience? What Solomon is trying to get us to see is that often the lack of patience and the lack of wisdom love to cohabitate together. You see, in the scriptures, there's a strong correlation between godly wisdom and patience. Well, Pastor James, what, what, what do I do if I, if I lack wisdom and patience? Am I just lost? Do I not have no hope? No. Listen to God's word in James chapter 1. James chapter 1 puts it this way. It says, now if you lack wisdom, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives, it to, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because that person is a double-minded person and they're unstable in all his or her ways. Notice with me, James is very open about the lack of wisdom. And he says, listen, if you lack wisdom, don't look to perseverance. Don't look to endurance. Don't just even look to book. Look to God. Look to God where you lack wisdom and God will give it to you. But here's the Here's the qualification, but let him or her ask in faith without doubting. What is James talking about? Doubting, right? Every time I ask God, right, I'm not doubting. What James is talking about is we need to ask God for wisdom, knowing that he's a good God, knowing that he's a gracious God, and knowing that he loves us and he wants to give us good and perfect wisdom in every situation of life, big or small. What he's saying to us is that we shouldn't go say, ask God, God, give me wisdom. But in our hearts, we really think, oh, this God doesn't really care about this. <laughs> God, God, God really doesn't care about this. He, he doesn't care about me knowing how to finish my basement. I've been working on that thing for two or three years. He, he doesn't care about me knowing how, how to do this project that I'm working on with my kids that I haven't, I haven't looked at in almost 20 years. He, he What James is telling us is that, listen, God is able to give you wisdom in every area, every experience of your life, big and small, but you have to go before him knowing that he's a good God and he wants to give you wisdom in that moment for that very thing. Don't be like the surging sea of thinking about God. Yeah, God loves me. He's good. Oh, no, God is not good. He doesn't care. God God wants to give me good things. Oh, no, 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 he doesn't. No, he doesn't. That's like the surging sea. And what he says is that person is double-minded and they're unstable in all their ways. So I want you to take some time to think even this morning, where in your life has being impatient caused 
the intended result you actually wanted or desired. Where in your life has being impatient really paid off? Where where can we look in our life and say, yeah, (laughs) being quick, quick witted and and, and not really standing firm in the Lord. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's really paid off for me. Where in your life is your lack of patience causing you to forsake wisdom? Where in your life is your lack of wisdom causing you to become impatient? I love what Galatians 5 says about this. And Paul's church to that beautiful church, the Galatians church, uh, he says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. And here Paul is quick to remind us that patience is a byproduct of having the fruit of God in our lives, of having God's presence in our lives. Patience isn't something that you just go buy. Patience isn't something that you just go do. Patience comes out of walking with, abiding with, living with God. It is a fruit of the Spirit of God. And if you want patience, it's going to take time for you to develop a relationship with God and not only develop a relationship with Him, but to invite God into some sticky situations that you find yourselves in, inviting God, yes, even into those places, and allowing God's patience to grow in the the darkness of those places to bring his glorious light of redemption. Takes time, church. Takes time, husband, to see your wife grow in the things of God, to see your wife grow for a taste to want to grow in the things of God. It takes time, wives, to see your husbands grow in Christ-likeness, to submit himself, to truly allow himself to love you as Christ loves the church. It doesn't happen just because you come to an altar and a, and a minister says, you may not kiss the bride. It doesn't happen because of that. It happens because you abide, you live, you walk, you struggle, you submit to the lordship and the beauty of God our King. It's a byproduct of walking with Jesus. You can't buy this on Amazon. You can't go get this at the flea market. And listen to me, this is worth your life. It is worth your life. It is worth every single struggle. It is worth every single difficulty. It's worth your patience. Because what God gives is not just for today. What God gives is eternal. It is for forever. It's like what Psalm 1 says about that man who abides in God's word. He or she will be like a tree planted besides flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose wheat leaf does not wither and whatever he or she does prospers. Notice with me, you prosper not just because you have knowledge, you prosper because you um, not because of your placement, you, 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 excuse me, not because of your proficiency, you prosper because of your placement. That person who abides in God's word is like a firmly planted tree that is, that is beside flowing streams. If I'm a tree and I can't walk, the one place I want to be is next to flowing streams. I don't want to be in a desert. 
I don't want to be in an oasis. I don't even want to be on an island. I want to be placed where if I can't get life myself, I want to be placed near the place where life flows. Psalm 1 invites us and reminds us that if you are not experiencing the beauty and the mystery and the glory of God in this life, if you're not experiencing his fullness in this moment, taking a quick evaluation of where you're placing yourself. He or she will be like a tree planted besides flowing streams that bears its fruit in a season. I love that because it reminds us that every season has different fruit bearing responsibilities. You're not going to, in the summer, in the wintertime, don't expect to have summer fruit. <laughs> and listen to me, some of you guys right now, even in the sound of my voice, you've been beating yourself up when, and you, you're beating yourself up for the wrong reason. It's not because God has abandoned you. You may just be in a season of desolation. You may be in a, series of, a, a season right now of weariness. You may be in a season of longing and you're so used to being in the summer season where everything came easy and it was fruitful and it was beautiful. But the beauty of, 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 of a tree is not, is not in itself. The beauty of a tree is that regardless of what season that tree is, is in, God provides its needs. That's the beauty of a tree. A tree stands firm in the winter, just as strong as it does in the summer. It stands stands tall when it loses its leaves in the fall, and it stands tall when it starts budding new leaves in the spring. God is calling us to be like a tree planted beside flowing streams. Look with me at verse 9 as we see this next aspect of the second admonition from, from Solomon. He says, don't let your spirit rush to be angry, for anger abides in the heart of fools. So if the first admonition was learn how to finish what you start, the second admonition is this, learn not to be driven by rage and selfish ambition. Why? Because James 1.20 says this, anger, human anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Verse 10 says, don't say, why were the former days better than these? Since it's not wise to ask this. I love what Tony Evans says about this. He says, there's nothing wrong with reminiscing with friends and family, but don't waste all your time gabbing about and longing for the good old days. If you choose to live in yesterday, you won't make forward progress and will fail to achieve what God wants you to be tomorrow. So there's two things that Solomon warns us against in verse 10. He wants us to be careful of nostalgia and he wants us to be careful of neglect. Nostalgia is simply this. Our remembrance never coincides perfectly with reality. We we remember and we long for something in the future, or we long for the good old days to come back. But the problem with that is that our our remembrance never really coincides with reality. We remember everything that was good. We forget everything that was bad and hard and difficult. Second thing he wants us to do is to be careful of neglect. In other words, when we ask, why were the former days better than these? We have to ask ourselves, are we denying the reality of God's goodness in our lives today? If you really think things were were worse off now than before, 
Are you suggesting that God is no longer in control or at work in the present age? When you ask why are the former days better than these, do you think God has not brought you to the place and point that you are now, right now? See, <laughs> the reason why we shouldn't ask this question is because this question is unwise because it assumes wrongly about God. It assumes, assumes that God is ambivalent, that he is blind to the good things of the present, And it also assumes wrongly about God that God is oblivious, that he is ignorant of the evil things in the past. Look with me in verses 11 through 14, as we see that wisdom is also seen embracing the sovereignty of God. Wisdom as is good as inheritance and advantage of those who seek the sun, because wisdom is protection as silver is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its owner. Consider the work of God for who can straighten out what he has made crooked, In the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in a day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that no one can discover anything that will come after him. Do you remember the story I shared earlier about the couple at the airport? Remember how everyone had boarded the plane and they were going to be the last to board the plane, even though they they were one of the first passengers to arrive to the gate? Remember all type of things were going through their mind? What's going on here? This isn't right. We were here first. Well, finally, after everyone else had boarded the plane, they finally heard their names called and they were invited to board the plane. The couple walked down the jetway and they looked at their boarding passes to find that they're assigned seats. And to their surprise, they had been upgraded to first class. All of a sudden, sorrow became laughter. Sadness became joy and anger became peace. And they each added a little pep in their step because they had jumped up from coach to first class. They both soon realized that sometimes, sometimes waiting isn't, ba- isn't that bad at all. <laughs> it's a good reminder for us this morning, church, that God's process is worth your patience. I'm going to say that again, that God's process is worth your patience. You see, there are some, there are some things in your life that you've been waiting on. There are some things that you've been waiting to see develop. There are some happenings that you've been longing for, but I'm telling you that God's process is worth your patience. God knows what he's doing. He may not come when you want him to come, but I tell you, he's always on time. Sometimes he'll say no. Sometimes he'll say go. And then sometimes he'll say grow. See, anything that's worthwhile is worthy of your patience. Give yourself enough time to grow in godly wisdom and thereby develop in your patience with God and also others. Will you pray with me? Father, we do love you and thank you. We thank you, God, that we can trust the sovereign hand of our God and King. We thank you, God, that your process is truly worth our patience. Help us to grow in patience in every way. May we be people who are marked by the patience that come from the fruit of your spirit. We ask this in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Father, I pray for those under the sound of my voice, those who may be discouraged. God, those who may need help, I pray that you would be an ever-present help in the time of need and time of trouble. Draw near to your people 
in their times of neediness. Help us, Lord, to admit our faults. Help us to believe that you are able to draw near. Help us to confess where we're trying to be God in our lives. And God, give us the determination. Give us a steadfastness. Give us patience and self-discipline to pursue you as our greatest treasure. Father, I pray that for those who are under my sound of my voice who may not know you as Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, that you allow them to this moment to be a moment where they omit their sins before you, that they are lost without you, and they may come to before you asking to be forgiven of sin and to be brought into relationship with God through his son Jesus, through the shed blood of, of the cross of Calvary. We pray that this would happen even now. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time, we're going to celebrate a meal together called communion that we celebrate every week. But this meal is not just a meal. This meal speaks to the reality of God being our all-sufficient king who was alone, who has alone fully and eternally atoned for our sins and who alone has given himself as a sacrifice and as our peace offering before God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. May we eat that bread together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let us take and drink of that cup together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus went on to say that I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now until the day I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Amen. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.